Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Mark McCabe, founder of Nomad Capital, one of the latest and greatest European micro VCs in our opinion. We absolutely love Mark and are sure you will too. Mark has done angel investments for more than a decade in consumer tech and have held operating roles as Airbnb and been part of the team at SV Angel as well as Sequoia Scout, where he's worked on investments in Stripe, Pinterest, Kaggle, Hipmunk, Elecart, and many more. Mark has also co-managed a Y Combinator-focused microfund, where he invested in 50 companies across three funds, including six unicorns and leading their seed investments to be followed by many great funds, like A16Z, Founders Fund, Tiger, and Spark Capital. With Nomad Capital, Mark focuses on finding SaaS tools built by incredible teams that can help the next generation of companies build better products faster and more effectively. We hope you will come to love Mark as much as we do. Have you ever wondered how you can use relationship analytics to spot the next European unicorn? Europe is incredibly diverse and finding the next kick-ass European startup is not for the faint of heart. In Europe, no single hub is responsible for spawning all the next tech success stories. Europe's 381 unicorns come from over 65 cities and data-driven sourcing is integral to the success of European VCs. Join us in learning from the best, our partners Affinity and Dealroom, as we deep dive on how relationship intelligence can put your sourcing on steroids. Register now to the event at the European VC's LinkedIn page. The event will be held online on the 7th of April at 7 p.m. Central European time. Tickets are free, but limited, so grab them while you can. Mark, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. Mark, this interview, we of course want to dive really into your investment thesis, but in the beginning, I think we should talk a bit about who you are, because you've got quite a track record and quite a story behind you. Some that may know if you know that you've also spent some time in the Valley, and there's a funny story on how you got there, so I really want to hear this story. Take us through it. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Mark McCabe. I do, I guess, have like a fairly interesting story. You're probably hearing my Irish accent and already wondering maybe how I ended up in the Bay Area. The story kind of goes back and I'll try not to make it too long for your listeners. But, you know, when I was a young kid, my family actually moved to the Bay Area. And my father was an entrepreneur at the time. He was starting a tech company in Ireland and they were just really struggling to get funding. And someone advised them, you know, this is like in the early 90s, so 91 or so, 92 maybe, they advised them to go to the US and try and find some funds there who might be interested in investing. The company was called CBT at the time. And he had his first meeting with an investor and, and they basically ended up saying like, oh, we like what you're doing, but like we can't write like a huge check, maybe $3 million dollars you know, let us know what you think. And, and my family was basically on the next flight to the Bay Area. I think that was the easiest uh, investor meeting he'd ever had. And so I was about eight years old and, you know, kind of moving over there, I was told I had to ingratiate myself with the Americans. And so I took up Little League Baseball in an effort to do that. And I ended up on the same Little League Baseball team as Topher Conway. And, you know, it's kind of weird how small moments end up being pretty impactful. But 
you know, it started certainly a relationship with the Conways that helped me then get an internship much later on with SV Angel. Not everyone in our audience are familiar with the Conways. Could you maybe just put a few words to their history uh, in the venture scene? Yeah, for sure. Um, so for those who don't know, SV Angel is sort of one of the preeminent seed stage funds in Silicon Valley. It started by Ron Conway. He was an early angel in Google, an early advisor to Facebook. I think his first angel fund was around about 2004 or five. I'm not actually 100% sure on that. But my family, either way, we moved back to Ireland in sort of the mid-late 90s. And I was just left with this obsession with technology. Like we'd had computers in my class in America. We didn't even have them when I moved back into an older grade in Ireland, let alone the internet. That was just going to take a couple of years still. But once I did get it, you know, I spent most of my teen years really just trying to find every weird corner of the internet, building pages, and eventually kind of getting more into the meta side of it. So I used to watch Dignation. I was reading Michael Arrington's blog that later became TechCrunch. You know, I kept seeing the Conway's names popping up. And I, I didn't really know anything about venture investing. But once again, like, this is kind of what drew me in. And, you know, I just started university at this point. I'm not necessarily technically proficient. I'm doing a business degree. But and I'm trying to imagine, like, what my role in the technology industry could be, because I'm clearly obsessed with it. I ended up actually taking a job with Google at a college. I spent less than a year with them. And it was actually a pretty good formative experience because I joined a nascent team within Google called Checkout. It was like only a six, seven person team in Dublin. And I got to see what it was like to actually really ramp up a product for launch. And, you know, all the operational sides of it, building canned responses for sales, actually signing up our first merchants on Checkout and developing some of the policies for it. But once the product was launched, it was a little bit different a role. And, you know, I kind of felt maybe tech wasn't for me, actually, I thought at the time. And fast forward a couple of years, I haven't really shaken that I want to be in the tech industry in some ways. And I, I've fixated more now on venture. You know, in 2009, it was a very different tech landscape to the one we know today. Like, there's just been a steady flow of new entrants to both the startup side, but also the investing side over the last 12, 13 years. You know, when I reached out to Ron in 2009 and told him like, hey, I'd love some advice. I want to get into venture. He was in a position to say like, well, why don't you just come intern for the summer? Which, you know, I think that would be a, a much more competitive process now. <laughs> and so I, I went out for the summer. My first day, we go visit the YC summer 2010 batch. And that was it. Like I was hooked from that moment. It was pretty much the most exciting day of work I'd ever done in my life. I was meeting all these people who were just incredibly passionate about what they were doing. They seemed nervous and like I was nervous for them. And yet they were just putting it out on the line and trying to build things that I really wanted them to build. You know, there was just so much green field in front of founders, I think, at the time. So I kind of knew that was it. And I worked really hard over that summer. They offered me a job full time. I spent about a year and a half or so with SV Angel. I've tried to do the math on it. I think I spoke with about 1,200 startups over yeah. the year and a half. It was it was working out to somewhere around 40 a week. It was just like a crash course in one, seeing how to do a good pitch, but also understanding how the technology industry and network around it works. I was very fortunate. Again, you know, one of the companies I met early on was Airbnb. Uh, Brian Chesky was coming in to give us an update. I'd been sleeping on a couch for two months because I had no credit history in the U.S., so I couldn't get a lease. And it was just <laughs> the right time to hear the Airbnb pitch. And Brian is sort of telling us, hey, we think this is starting to work. We might do $10 million in bookings this year, like a million bucks in revenue. This is really crazy. 
most VCs at the time, I think, are still very much like, I'm staying in a Four Seasons. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> staying in someone else's bed. And a lot of people who are not deep into travel, like, really just think it's couch surfing with some money attached. One, a business that fundamentally understood travel, and the first of its kind, in my opinion, that really understood travel, and also like a platform that had so much potential because of this offline you know interaction between host and guests that we were linking offline and online worlds you know there was a lot of really cool software coming out but this is where i really saw technology changing this kind of consumer experience in such a significant way and I just became obsessed and I became a host pretty much straight after that. And I stayed pretty close to the team. And when they went to hire their first business development person at the end of 2011, I jumped at it. I began like a seven year journey with Airbnb. So I started working with Airbnb and initially it was kind of a product BD role. My first day on the job, I sat down with our head of product and, you know, he basically said like, hey, welcome aboard BD guy. Um, Joe Zade is his name. He's a really good friend now. So I didn't take this the wrong way, thankfully. But he was like, you know, the site was down for two hours yesterday. We have 15 engineers, if you think you're building an API team or anything that requires any kind of technical support, you know, please think again, because it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, welcome aboard. Awesome here. <laughs> what I was really lucky is that there was this guy at the company, Akbar Tabani, who became a mentor to me. He'd been brought in sort of temporarily to help oversee some transitions around payments and just brought me into the fold on that. And Airbnb had a huge issue around payments. You know, we were taking every yen, euro, kroner, whatever a guest was paying in, we were converting it to a dollar and then we were converting it back into whatever currency the host wants. So at this stage, like we're still very much, we're paying double FX. Um, I think payments plus FX was coming around to about 40% of our fee revenue. So like significant, we'd never called any of our payment providers and been like, hey, we're going to do a lot of volume with you. You should negotiate your rates. Um, we hadn't set up currency pools. We hadn't. I so there was, there was a lot of work to do in that first year and a half. And as the company was scaling so rapidly, it was about you know sixty or seventy people when I joined. And it's already a few hundred. I start to think of like what opportunities are going to be developed. And one that was really close to me was was Airbnb for business travel. The reason why it excited me is, as a company, we're now about three four hundred people. We're exclusively using Airbnb for our business travel. Like we're going to visit different cities and offices and setting up marketing events, and we're using it in a myriad of creative ways. And just don't really see other products like that. And so I start going around the building with this tagline like, "Not all business travelers wear suits." <laughs> because there was this reticence around the corporate nature of this yeah. activity and that like this was never going to appeal to the KPMGs. It was never going to appeal to the Deloitte's. We're still very much an outsider company, you know, a billion plus valuation at the stage, like, but still very much an outsider company. And at a hackathon, I managed to get a team together. We ended up winning the hackathon and, and this gave me enough rope to really start building things out and signed up our first initial customers and, and started building a team around that. And over three years, I, I scaled it up. We were, we were doing about a half billion dollars in attributable bookings volume um, sort of by the end of that period. And I think probably the biggest win for that team was just starting to get more validation. You know, like large companies were marketing us to their employees. And it is really hard to remember this, but still Airbnb, you know, we, we were in a number of legal disputes that were quite publicized with different governments and cities around the world. And, you know, I think people still thought of us as this strange gray legal area. And so a lot of these business use cases were providing validation and, and adding something new to the market. You know, these companies that were actually starting to do offsites, which they had never done before and, and using Airbnb to do that. So it was really fun. And I got to build a sales team, which was a pretty unique experience inside of Airbnb. We didn't have a Salesforce account. We didn't have any of this stuff. So I got to kind of do it from scratch. 
I was having lunch with Joe Gebbia one day, uh, one of the, the Airbnb co-founders, and he said, like, I've just started this R&D group and, you know, you've gotten this project from zero to one. Like, would you like to come over with us and help get more projects off the ground? And, and that was my last two years at the company and very different work. I can't talk about it as much, but some really interesting projects, a couple of which did actually see the light, especially around modular housing. And, you know, I go from hiring enterprise salespeople to trying to hire mechanical engineers in Moscow and just a, a completely different team building experience. I left in 2018 and I just had my second son. And so I'm really thinking about like what I want my life to look like. And there's this idea that's been gnawing at me and it's, it's really influenced actually by Ron Conway and, and the work that I saw him do at SV Angel, where he would take a few companies under his wing every year and just completely orchestrate their fundraising process. And it was just so highly leveraged and so valuable to those companies. He was kind of an honest broker essentially and could bring in the best investors in the world. And, you know, I just started thinking about what an asymmetrical process fundraising is that you know, founders, if they're experienced at fundraising, they've done it a handful of times in their life. And VCs are obviously doing this every day. And it's not even that I think it's that competitive of a situation. It's just opaque and it's full of tension for founders because it's such a make or break moment. You know, if they don't fundraise, does their company go under? Married with that, I'd also had a lot of friends leave Airbnb and go and fundraise and just a very mixed bag of experiences. And I thought, why isn't there more support? Like, why aren't founders able to staff up in this area when it's such a fundamental part of what keeps their company going? And so, you know, as I'm thinking about this, YC actually announces their Series A program. And I'm like, uh oh, okay. Well, I guess there's something to this. Funny enough, bringing this back to Akbar, he was my first customer, my first client. So, my former boss, he'd left Airbnb, he'd started a company in the crypto space, and you know, he told me he wanted to raise Series A. I told him what I was thinking about, and he uh, agreed to be my guinea pig, I guess. And it worked well. There was some kind of tough moments in it, but um, we were able to get it three or four term sheets for his round in the end and get a good outcome. And so, I started consulting around this. I probably had a dozen or so clients every year and a half and at the same time we also start raising some microphones with a friend of mine brad flora who's now one of the partners at yc and you know he pulled me into this and uh, we were raising really small funds like we would raise essentially like a million dollars to invest in one yc batch and spread it out maybe over eight to 12 companies and we did this three batches in a row winter 18 summer 18 and winter 19 it was a blast and you know the reason why i kind of go into all this is both the airbnb experience and what i did afterwards was sort of formative and what i'm doing today and my wife and i decided in, in 2019 that we wanted to try and relocate to ireland so we wanted to raise our kids close to the family and so we moved back and you know a month later the pandemic happens <laughs> and, um, and i'm long a travel company so it was an interesting start in all senses, you ended up moving home. <laughs> In all senses. And very permanently so, certainly yeah. for a little while. Mark, I'd love to hear you tease out, you know, the main learning from working with SV Angels and also your main learnings from Airbnb. How have they been formative? One is, of course, with Ron Conway, you really learn the importance of fundraising and going in there, working with the founders around structuring that process. But I'm sure there's a bunch of others that have been formative to you. The biggest lesson I learned from Ron was undoubtedly just how small the tech industry is. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to say that in like, it's, it's obviously not small in dollars. 
<laughs> but it's a small network and things move incredibly quickly. While I understood the lesson, like I understood the English behind what he was saying at the time, it has actually taken me like years to really learn it. And for him, it was really just about how you treat other people then within that. And that you never sort of look at someone and think to yourself, I'm above this, or, you know, I shouldn't give this proper attention, or, you know, I can be rude because I'm on top. It was very much the opposite of that. It was that you can be made to look like a fool if you don't pay attention and if you don't treat people the same. And you start to get that lesson when you've met, like, the likes of Pinterest when they're two people or Instagram when it's still called bourbon. And then five, six years later, you know, these are billion dollar businesses and everyone wants to be in them and all your friends back at home are using these products. And, you know, I think that's probably one of the most important lessons I learned from Ron. And I think it's one of the most important lessons for everyone who's kind of getting into tech to learn is that like things shift really quickly and people that you meet in certain positions, you know, that changes. So that's definitely what I learned from Ron. From Airbnb, I mean, uh, the lessons are pretty endless. So like if I had to pick one that I think was most relevant for your listeners, wow, okay, two. Two, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join them together because I think they're linked. One, this is going to sound cliched or that's been said a million times, but I would say 99% of companies don't do this right, which is your culture is one of the most fundamentally important things that you're going to build building a business. And the second part of this lesson is that the team that you bring on board is the number one influence on culture outside of the founders. If you as a founding team pretty much only spend your time worrying about how employees are going to experience your business and what you want them to feel and how you want them to make decisions and what their framework is, and equally then take all the time that you have to make sure that the people coming in can execute that and match those values, um, you're going to build a lasting and powerful business because you're going to have people who are aligned, who know what to do in difficult decisions, who aren't going to spin cycles on unnecessary things. And Airbnb did all of those things. So I don't know how a company that could be less aligned culturally would have managed. Those are probably the two most fundamental lessons I learned from Airbnb. I have a question on your lesson around 1,200 deals or people, founder startups met over the, your, your one and a half stint with SB Angels, and then that comes down to 40 per week. Coupling that with that, that I know that you've done 21 deals in your first fund here since May, and now it's late January. That is quite a bit more rapid pace than most European funds. So I'd love to hear your thinking around that. First off, there's two things. One, I'm obviously not a lead check fund. You know, Nomad Capital is a, it's a $10 million fund, typically writing checks in the region of 100 to 250K at seed round. We'll do some pre-seed, some A's. But, you know, we try to stay as disciplined as we possibly can. I'm lucky that, you know, I probably have maybe a 100 or so seed stage investments just personally driven or through funds that I've done prior to this, which has given me a full cycle of seeing how this evolves, right? And why your model might be important. If I was leading deals, it'd be a completely different story. Like it just wouldn't really be possible to do that. But I think I came into Nomad with a really clear picture of the kind of companies that I wanted to invest in. And that has helped me execute a pace. And there's two other factors that I think have driven that. One is there's been a Cambrian explosion of startups being founded, especially in Europe, but equally in the US. There's never been a better time to start a company. And I think we've been able to say that every year for about 12 <laughs> years, but it's definitely continuing to be true. And there's more capital out there. There's more acceptance of starting a company. And, and that's moving not from just like your peers, but now into your family. 
to even have an idea of what this is. And I think the third factor is that I was able to put my fun on AngelList. And I, like, I can't say enough about how much they streamline for me and how it really just makes my job a source and point and shoot kind of experience. They've just provided incredible support that's allowed me to operate at that pace. I want to deep dive into what you're saying. You know, the, this is the strategy that has allowed you to invest at this pace. Let's give a quick overview for our listeners to know what we're talking about. So in terms of strategy, it's a couple of things. One, it's knowing the kinds of profiles of opportunities that I think are exciting, that I think have a potential Um, and equally having some areas that I'm more aligned around that, you know, I might devote more time to. And when I say devote more time, I mean, if I get a pitch deck, I'm more likely to read it in a little bit more detail. I'm more likely to schedule a call with a founder than in an area that I'm less into. And funds are increasingly agnostic, I think, in terms of sector, you know, with this explosion of startups. I actually think having a few sectors that you do want to focus on just streamlines things a little bit. And they're incredible opportunities, I think, within those markets. Like you do have to pick markets that are exciting, that are interesting, that have high growth potential and, and a high upside. But by just focusing on a few of them, you can make faster decisions. And I think that's also become a really important strategic element of every fund, just to be able to move as quickly as possible at the moment when things are, are speeding up all the time. What are the sectors you are focused on then? So I'll draw a couple of lines between some of the work I did prior to starting Nomad. I mean, building a sales team inside of Airbnb was the first thing that really made me a real buyer for software inside of a company. And especially around data observability, that experience has probably driven me to make at least a half dozen investments. Because when I joined, like we didn't actually have an ETL team at Airbnb We just bought Tableau, but we're using it predominantly for product metrics. There was no sales DNA in the company, so we had no sales force. We never heard a clear bit. And so I had to really do a ton of research to build our stack. Like we were an eight-person sales team attacking a global market. So this wasn't you know, a huge priority in Airbnb initially, and I had to buy software to make that team scale. And then as I moved over to the R&D group, you know, the software changed, but the, or the problems changed, but there were still software solutions to that. So you know, I remember getting in trouble for buying $30,000 worth of steel on my corporate Amex, <laughs> finance calling me up. And I remember just the challenges I had hiring contractors in different markets. And like when I first met Alex Bouaziz as he was starting Deal, it was just so easy for me to see why a global contracting solution could get a lot of traction. I couldn't have predicted that the pandemic was going to happen <laughs> 10 months later and thus completely transform how we look at the global workforce. And, you know, they've benefited from those headwinds as much as any business. But I knew that, you know, Airbnb, who were really sophisticated about buying software at this point, you know, when I was in the R&D group, couldn't find software that I thought was really suitable, that was really good. And then as I left Airbnb, I think it was just about trying to apply those experiences and learning from some of the clients that I was working with on the fundraising side. And that certainly drove some of the other opportunities I invested in. I think also the, the marketplace experience has particularly refined my ability to invest in that theme. So I'll do very few investments, but I can grok these opportunities very quickly and just coming back to being able to make quick decisions. Like I remember the first time I met Papa, that was a really easy decision to invest. Like he's building a, a completely unique supply side business in an area that is trending towards increasingly necessary. And, you know, VCs are looking at this business. And sorry, for those who don't know, Papa is a two-sided marketplace that essentially connects people who have time, gig economy workers 
with elderly people who are aging in place. And the insight that Papa's founder, Andrew Parker, had early on was, you know, honor has failed. Why has it struggled so much? And it's because we're using call-out doctors to, like, pull board games off of shelves and run errands. Like, it's a terrible way to use their time. There's a lack of supply in the market for this. But this seems to be the bulk of the demand for these customers. And so how do we supply that? And it may not have looked like a really attractive business early on, although so Gary Tanner had initialized, it certainly did. But, you know, now it's a unicorn and, and just I really love the impact that that business have. Very similar with Chef. Like Chef was one of those companies when I first met them, you know, it looked so close to Airbnb to me. For those who don't know, Chef empowers at-home chefs to make meals and they operate all the logistics between the chefs and, and their customers. They had this kind of elderly lady who was making dumplings in her house. She had 420 reviews. And this is like within three or four months of launch. And people just saying like, I love this woman. Like, I love her food. You don't see that kind of love very often. So, you know, being able to see what, again, a unique supply in a slowly changing regulatory market can do, I can just make a very quick decision on those kind of businesses. And, you know, OpenSea is probably the ultimate example. Web3 as a term was not coined when Brad and I first met OpenSea. But I'm looking at this business and I say, you know, this is a business with infinite, incredibly cheap to produce supply. And they're starting with an incredibly low take rate. So they can't even be cut out through that. If, if digital assets, if the trend of digital assets becoming scarce is going to continue, then this is the most unfair business model I've ever seen. So just very lucky in a lot of ways with how things went, but fortunate that my background kind of put me in the position to see these things. Speaking of background, you said earlier that one of your learnings was that the tech scene is very, very small. <laughs> Now you're in Europe. I am guessing that the tech scene feels a bit bigger over here than it did in the States, or am I wrong? It's just about perspective, but no, it's actually made me think it's even smaller. <laughs> and not because there's, you know, there's tons of people working on tech here, there's tons of people working in the US, and there's a lot of people in the tech industry I don't know, you know. But uh, like I'll have a random call with someone in Berlin, and they know this person I knew in San Francisco that I didn't just know, like I was friends with, I used to get coffee with, and they also know this person in London that we both know, and Yeah, like if anything, it has joined a lot more dots and actually almost closed part of the network around me in a really lovely way. I think that's very interesting because I have a standing disagreement with some fund of funds here in Europe that focus on uh, investors that focus on a very small niche physical area, so geography, because I believe mm -hmm. the same thing as you say there, that once you're in the ecosystem and, you know, everyone are online now, so... Your digital footprint is more important than your physical, basically. I'm very curious to hear, is that what you're saying here? That you have no issue sitting in Ireland and then meeting good deal flow in Spain just as well as in, in Poland and, and the UK? Absolutely. If you're building software for the global market, there are some elements. I can't say it like point blank. It doesn't matter where you are because I think there are some things that do matter. And I think... It kind of depends on your profile as a founder and how your characteristics might counter the remote nature of what you're doing or, you know, being in a market that's considered like not an exciting investing market. But, you know, if you have a strong profile online, like I don't care, you could be in Mongolia, you could be wherever you want, like, you know, you're able to drive your audience towards what you're doing and bring them along the journey with you. Like that's probably one of the most important elements for getting your business off the ground, or especially if you're building a B2B SaaS business, like one of the dynamics I really look for is having a prior track record in B2B SaaS. Like, because if you've been 
someone who ran product or design or data science or engineering at a B2B SaaS company, you know tons of other B2B SaaS companies. And guess what? They're probably going to be your early customers. And the better the company you work for, the better those partners are probably early on. I think that's just a massively unfair advantage in that particular business model. So try to look at the whole as much as possible. And, you know, geo is one aspect of that, but it's an increasingly unimportant aspect of it, in my opinion. And that's part of the reason for calling my fund Nomad Capital. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but we're recruiting people from all over the world. We're raising capital from investors all over the world. And I was definitely poking fun of that a little bit with the name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to hear your thoughts around, you know, you're not a lead investor, as you said. And so how do you think about what gives you access to the best deals, right? Because you're investing in a lot of companies, investing small checks, and I'd love you to hear. So what is exactly the value add that you bring to these founders all across the globe? And how do you sell that to them? Great question. There's a few things. One is... I've been very fortunate to be, I think, one of the most important consumer tech companies of the last decade and been there through the most formative part of its journey. You know, from 6070 to about 6,000 employees, we moved office three times. Um, We reorged probably four times. We hired a ton of people at senior level, at junior level. Some of those people were exceptional and some of them were middling and some of them were, were detrimental. And I think those experiences, I want to make that available to every founder that I invest in. I love to teach, like teaching sort of been my model for learning since I was in school. Like I was not very attentive in class. I would cram notes and then I would find other people and I would teach them what I'd learned. And it was really just my way to repeat and get better at knowing it. And I really enjoy it. Like I get a lot of enjoyment out of trying to pass some of this stuff on and you know it's one perspective like i might tell you how things went at airbnb and there's there's probably three or four other ways that could have gone and ended up in a successful result so i try and try and couch this stuff but i think having that in the founders that i've invested in corner they've told me or the feedback they've given me is that it's useful another area specifically around the fundraising stuff having now seen and, and really helped support founder through a few different rounds and seeing some of the different dynamics that can come up and build up those reps i think that's one area where where I help founders a lot. Like when they're going out to raise Series A, there's not a single founder that I've invested in that I haven't had a conversation with and for the most part generally get involved in pretty deeply sometimes. And then, you know, it's the network. The LP network I've put together is primarily based of people who I, I really love and people who have been part of my network in the Bay Area for a long time, gone on to do, you know, maybe they were at Airbnb and they've gone on to do amazing things or I met them because of my time at Airbnb and SV Angel or consulting work or at YC. And there's, you know, people of all sorts really within this group. So to be able to turn that on for my portfolio, I think has also been really helpful. And and I try to be upfront. Like I think a lot is promised around, you know, I'll help you find your first engineer and I'll help you find customers. And especially with customers, there's a lot that most funds can do and it's helpful. But I think, on the engineering side, I just think it's so low conversion. You know, there's an immense demand for tech talent at the moment. And getting these placements is, I think, maybe suboptimal in terms of bandwidth is the best way for me to put that. So, like, I prefer to add value in, in other areas yeah. as much as I humanly can as a result. I'm going to risk being a bit redundant here, but you touched a bit on it. And it's super interesting for our audience to hear. You know, talking about your LP makeup. I want to hear you talk a bit about your fundraising strategy. 
And why did you want it to be this way? Because, you know, there's many different makeups you could have with a fund your size that would make sense, right? But I want to hear how it connects to your strategy and your value add and all of that. I wish I could tell you it was incredibly sophisticated how I did it. And, you know, <laughs> it worked though, right? <laughs> it, it worked. You know, I knew I wanted to raise a fund. Like that much was clear. I had started building a deck and I was starting to line up some conversations. I, you know, I talked to a number of people who had raised small funds in the past. And I think that's really important thing. Like if I say the tech ecosystem is small, the emerging manager <laughs> fund, fund investor ecosystem is, is a tiny, tiny, tiny little niche of that. And so, you know, having conversations with some of those people learning what they dealt with was helpful. But I happened to be catching up with Airbnb's first infra engineer, really awesome guy, Florian Liebert. He has his own fund, 468 Capital, and I was trying to get advice from him. And he said, you're raising a fund? Uh, I'll write you a check right now. <laughs> and, you know, I hadn't planned to start right then in that second, but I started thinking I better go find some more LPs or, or Flo is going to be on his own. And I just want to shout out and say thank you to Flo because sometimes I think we, we need that moment, right? And the question is what you do afterwards. So I think I realized that, like, if I can show that my network really values me and, and thinks I can do a good job at this, I can start maybe talking to some larger groups and groups who don't know me yet. And so the first four or five million I raised, I think, was entirely sort of 50 to 100k checks people i knew maybe even a few smaller checks i was trying to keep it 50 and above and then you know there started to be more conversations with some family offices and some institutions so in the end i didn't really go that right for this fund a lot of the emerging managers that david and i are speaking to are you know actually wanting to go the route of doing smaller co-investment tickets following your strategy but a lot of people are receiving a lot of shit from LPs on that type of strategy. And it's not something that is very well seen by many people in Europe. Because I'm sure you've debated this with many. You maybe haven't ended up taking tickets from anyone. But I'm sure that you, you've had to convince some people or at least tell some people that they're completely wrong in their view that you have to do 20% DB rounds. Well, let's try and be balanced about this. So let's talk about where they're right first. Logistically... Raising a fund on 5K checks, one that you can live on, even as a solo partner, that's going to take you a long time. <laughs> and yeah, there's there's ways to do it faster. And, you know, for, I really love what, for example, the Weekend Fund have done. And, you know, I think they're real innovators around this, but you need an audience. And just logistically, those if you have to talk to each one of those, it's impossible. That's the side where I'd say, fair enough. But I can't believe any LP would say to me right now, I don't want 500 people who are, you know, operators within the tech industry to be in this fund. Like, I can't think of a more powerful way to have feelers out there to know who's leaving these. You know, I want to know who's leaving Deliveroo and starting a company. I want to know who's leaving Checkout and starting a company. I want to know Adyen, uh, who's leaving and starting a company. And, and like, to build that network around yourself, the further you are away from operational experience, the harder it is to really be in that network, you know? And I know, like, you can catch up with people. You can chat with the guys doing corp dev, whatever company. You can talk to the engineering manager. But to be top of mind, it's, you know, you need to have these people with skin in the game as well. And that's why I think what you guys are working on at the moment is so exciting to democratize access to funds. Like, I'd love to do it. In the U.S., if you raise above $10 million, you know, things really change if you go over 90 LPs in terms of your reporting requirements. And so 
funds are trying to find new and innovative ways of really opening up their cap table. And I really applaud the funds that are doing that. Now to an investment strategy question, you are doing primarily these tickets where you are co-investing. And I'm super curious to hear how ecosystem in Europe has taken that because we have so many that do the other strategy of actually leading the investments and, and you're not. But we're, we are hearing a lot of backlash on emerging managers that pursue the strategy of doing co-investments primarily. And who are you hearing the backlash from? <laughs> Honestly, the emerging managers are hearing it from LPs saying that, no, you need to leave the deals. I don't want to invest in someone who does co-investments only. Listen, I, I really don't believe in black and white. The world is gray and there are absolutely perfect strategies for emerging managers doing follow-on checks. And there's reasons why, yeah, you would be in a better position if you were more of a lead check fund. And I think it's about aligning the strategy with the emerging manager themselves, what access they have, what kind of investor that they are and where they've been successful in the past. And I think it's wrong to ever say like, this can't work. Like, I mean, Maybe when Atomic started, people would have said, oh, I don't know if like the incubate model where you're coming up with the business yourself and it's not as much founder driven can work. Well, you know, they're laughing all their way to the bank at the moment. So fortune t- tends to favor the bold and those who just, you know, follow and work really hard. And I think maybe some of the backlash, like if we were to address that, comes from it being perhaps a harder check to write occasionally. But I'm not even sure that's right. Like, I'm trying to <laughs> to look here, but it's really hard to compete on a lead check. Like, sure, it, it makes it look really easy when Index do it or, or when Sequoia does it. And yeah, it just seems like the lead fund is the perfect strategy. But, you know, decades of incredible work and remarkable conviction in a model that people didn't want to invest in as much 10 years ago to get to that point, right? Yeah. So I think that's the same with, with follow-on checks. And I think the challenge is, you know, how do you provide value? How do you work with other investors? And how do you find founders at the right time? If I find a founder and they don't have a lead check yet, guess what? They'd love to get a commitment from me and and other emerging managers writing 100, 150K checks. So it's about timing and execution. Couldn't agree more. (laughs) Uh, Mark, it's time for us to go to the quick fire round, quick answer questions. I've been dreading this. (laughs) It's the most awful round. (laughs) Are you ready? First question. Within B2B SaaS tools, consumer marketplaces, which is what you really do a lot of, what excites you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? I don't know if there are sectors that no one is interested in anymore. But I'll tell you one that I still think has maybe surprisingly a lot of room to go, and that's that's for sure solving the finance stack. Whether it's looking about how businesses interact with their banks, how they interact with treasury management, how they tie this into the myriad systems internally that they're combining with product metrics, that they're combining with RevOps. Like, I just think that there are so many little spots within this stack that are still driven by fairly manual approaches, whether it's, you know, combining spreadsheets, doing merges, all of this kind of stuff. So I see a ton of opportunity there, even though it feels like, you know, especially in Europe, right, there's a really a much faster maturing sector, I think, in terms of fintech. But I still think there's a ton of room to grow on the B2B side in particular. And like when I first came back, I think one of the startups that I was, I was really looking to find was sort of like the Mercury for Europe. I reached out to the founder of Airbank and ended up investing a small amount in their round. 
but they're really just at the start. And I think a lot of the other businesses in this space are, and, and you know, we've certainly seen stuff on the, the CFO side and the financial analysis and planning side. And there've been a number of companies that raised series A and B there, but I, I still think there's a long way to go in treasury management and in financial management inside of companies. Second question, what's the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned since you started investing? Well, you know, I probably would have answered about the size of the tech industry because it's still this thing that, that kind of flummoxes me a little bit. But counterintuitive, I think I would say that markets are constantly expanding. I say it's counterintuitive. That's probably not the right word, but I don't think we fully learned the lesson yet. And I think we may still have a while to go. You know, when 2013, 2014, around about the, the Facebook IPO, I think, you know, there were definitely questions about, oh, wow, can this be, will this be a $100 billion business? And, you know, we saw like two consumer $100 billion plus IPOs just on two days in December last year. Yeah. Or sorry, in 2020. Yeah. Um, yeah. Still calling it last year. <laughs> the PTSD has not gone away yet. <laughs> so like, that's a pretty big transformation. We now have multiple trillion dollar tech companies. And so I think the, the counterintuitive thing I'll say is that I think there's still a lot of room to grow, certainly in a lot of sectors. Like I feel like a lot of software sectors are still very much nascent, that the promise of software eating the world is very much still it's in its infancy. And just look at the different times when you, you use tech products and you're frustrated that one doesn't join to the next or one doesn't do what you want it to do and one isn't seamless enough and one is not letting you sign in. And I think you'll see like that we're still very early. And final question, what can we expect in the future from Mark McCabe and Nomad Capital? Uh, you know, obviously I'm on this podcast right now. I think it's the first one I've done where I've really talked about Nomad. Hopefully you'll start to see a little bit more about the fund over the next couple of quarters. You know, certainly this year I'll start to think about and probably start working on raising fund two and um, hopefully invest in and help and support um, a lot of really great founders across the U.S. and Europe. Mark, thank you for joining us. That was real fun. It's been really cool. And we can't wait to welcome you again at the European VC. Thank you so much, guys. All the best. Thanks, Mark. Have you ever wondered how you can use relationship analytics to spot the next European unicorn? Europe is incredibly diverse and finding the next kick-ass European startup is not for the faint of heart. In Europe, no single hub is responsible for spawning all the next tech success stories. Europe's 381 unicorns come from over 65 cities and data-driven sourcing is integral to the success of European VCs. Join us in learning from the best, our partners Affinity and Dealroom, as we deep dive on how relationship intelligence can put your sourcing on steroids. Register now to the event at the European VC's LinkedIn page. The event will be held online on the 7th of April at 7pm Central European time. Tickets are free, but limited, so grab them while you can. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.